Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we are um, adjured that this is a weekend to do some remembering. It's a 20th anniversary. And um, I'm I'm just amused by what we ch- are told to remember on this occasion and what we're not. A guy who's doing some remembering right about now is a uh, former CIA guy named Bruce Riedel. He's he's now a senior fellow and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project, the Brookings Institution. Retired from the CIA after 30 years. He was a senior advisor on South Asia and the Middle East to the last four presidents of the United States and the staff of the National Security Council. And he just uh, delivered himself of some observations this week. One of them is involved saying the word you're not supposed to speak in the context of 9-11 or of the Afghanistan war. That word was Pakistan. He used that word in the context of saying that the victor in the Afghanistan war was and is Pakistan. What? Why would the Taliban were, if not the creation, at least the welcome recipient of support, financial and otherwise, of the Pakistani Intelligence Service, ISI, and um, generals in the um, Pakistani army? That's what Riedel says. It's it's known. It's it's not his invention that um, the ISI supported the Afghan Taliban, gave them safe harbor in in the uh, Pakistani hill country after we came in in two thousand one into Afghanistan. There's also, of course, a Pakistani Taliban. Which makes the the Pakistan this very same people in Pakistan a little bit more nervous than the Afghan Taliban do, but that's just part of the uh, as as pointed out in this program a couple of weeks ago the double game that Pakistan has been playing all this time. That's not all that Bruce Riedel said this week. However, check this out. He was at a uh, conference and the tape was rolling. I recently found my uh, diary. For 2001, and it shows that on September 14th, I was in the Oval Office with the President when he talked to Tony Blair, and in the middle of the conversation with Tony Blair about 9-11, George Bush says, we're going to attack Iraq, too. Three days after 9-11, he tells the British he's going to attack Iraq. Now, Tony Blair was stunned. You could, you could tell in the listening to the phone call that the British Prime Minister was just completely taken aback. Now, in time, of course, he would come around. So were the Democrats. Uh, w- one other thing about this 
remembering stuff. We, um, we were told as the investigations launched into 9-11 that one of the problems inside the federal government was that the different agencies were siloing their information. CIA wasn't sharing with the FBI, vice versa. They, none of them were sharing with the State Department uh, so that their awareness of these 9-11 terrorists weren't being shared in a timely manner. And we're a couple in San Diego, you know, hanging in San Diego. What, what was? And that was why we got the Department of Homeland Security and the Director of national intelligence to try to solve the problem of siloing. And now this year, as a matter of fact, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been reading a book. It's coming out soon. And uh, I'll have a discussion with the author on this program in a couple of weeks about COVID and the U.S. response to COVID. And one of the points the author makes is that information and responsibilities were being siloed competitively between the CDC and the FDA. So, apparently it takes more than uh, a surprise terrorist attack on Washington and New York for the United States to learn that uh, you shouldn't have siloing among agencies of the federal government. Oh, yes, there is one other unspeakable word. I don't think Bruce Riedel mentioned it this week. It's it's something I happen to remember. The vast majority of the um, terrorists involved in the hijackings of those planes on 9-11, <laughs> they didn't come from Afghanistan. The country we invaded to avenge 9-11. They came from Saudi Arabia. Hello, welcome to the show. A farewell tip from Clinton That Bush chose to ignore A lessening of emphasis when the exports called for more Some strange young guys in flight school Who couldn't love to land And tragedy at 400 knots Next time We'll connect the dots Gives you clues that you can use Sometimes makes the news Seems so clear in the land of afterthoughts Rebuilding 
From the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcome you to this edition of the show. Another intelligence, former intelligence official, was um, sharing some lessons this week. Michael Morell, also formerly of the CIA, he told uh, Axios.com, quote, We've learned in the last 20 years that huge armies on the ground are actually a, a bad idea because they incentivize people to join terrorist groups, unquote. That's some slow learning, babe. He also was quoted as saying this. When people are trying to kill you, literally trying to kill you, it's hard not to put most of your focus there. Maybe even more focus than you should. Sure, it's not grammatical, but it excuses a lot. Thanks, Mike. Let's uh, be sure to check in with us in another 20. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm. I think I copyrighted it once. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. What's the cost of climate change? Well... 
we've been told something on the subject, but economic models of climate change may have substantially underestimated the costs of continued warming. That's according to a new study involving researchers from University College London. Published in the journal Environmental Research Letters, we get environmental research letters. The work by an international team of scientists found that the economic damage could be six times higher by the end of this century than previously estimated. Who were those estimators? Projections like this help governments around the world calculate the relative costs and benefits of cutting greenhouse gas emissions, supposedly. Prior analysis has shown the models used may ignore important risks and therefore underestimate the costs. Most models focus on short-term damage, assuming that climate change has no lasting effect on economic no lasting effect on economic growth despite growing evidence to the contrary. Extreme events like droughts, fires, heat waves, and your storms are likely to cause long-term economic harm because of their impact on health savings and labor productivity. It's all. The um, study shows that by 2100, global GDP could be 37% lower than it would be without the impacts of warming. When taking the effects of climate change on economic growth into account, Without accounting for lasting damages excluded from most estimates, GDP would be around 6% lower, meaning the impacts on growth may increase the economic costs of climate change by a factor of 6. There's considerable uncertainty about how much climate damages continue to affect long-term growth and how far societies can adapt to reduce these damages. Depending how much growth is affected, the economic costs of warming this century could be up to 51% of global GDP. Says the study co-author, we don't know exactly how much effect climate change will have on long-term economic growth, but it's unlikely to be zero, as most economic models have assumed. Well, what do you expect from models? They look nice, but you can't squeeze water from a rock, but tree roots can. And they're doing it more frequently than scientists previously thought. In a study published in Nature, it's a magazine about nature, Simon Fraser University geography researcher and a team from the University of Texas, Austin, and the Forest Service found that bedrock is a regular source of water for trees across the United States not just an emergency reserve during droughts. The discovery overturns long-held assumptions about where trees get their water. It's leading to new ideas about how forest ecosystems function. It also demonstrates the necessity of accounting for rock moisture. Rock moisture. The water clinging to cracks and pores in bedrock below the soil level. This finding tells us that if we want to understand how forests will fare in a warmer, drier climate, we need to take a harder look at bedrock as a water source. That's from uh, Jesse Hom from Simon Fraser University. For more than a century, scientists around the world have been documenting trees rooting into bedrock, but these roots have been largely treated as a curiosity. And although experiments at field sites have provided direct evidence of trees tapping rock moisture and relying on it during droughts, 
Questions remained about how extensive this phenomenon may be. Now, by combining public data sets that tracked precipitation and evaporation in forests from 2003 to 2017 with field studies in Texas and California, the researchers found that trees tapping bedrock is far from rare. It's happening across the U.S. with scientists detecting the behavior in about 24% of forests and shrubland, an area greater than the size of Texas, and with better laws. In addition to demonstrating the trees commonly tap roots into bedrock water stores, the study shows that trees are moving large volumes of water. In California alone, the amount of bedrock water taken up by forests each year exceeds the capacity of all the state's man-made reservoirs. Discovery motivates expanded study of the role of bedrock as a water source in British Columbia. Dry summers, like the one we just experienced, says the chief researcher, are expected to become more common in the future in southern B.C. That's where Simon Fraser University is. That means trees will rely more on stored water below ground, including water in bedrock. Rock moisture sounds like a comeback attempt for the B-52s. To save one of the last wetlands on the French Riviera from rising sea levels, conservationists have taken the unusual step of removing its protective seawalls. They've let nature take its course. What? The Vieux Salandier salt marshes, thank you, sit just below sea level with a stretch of vital but shifting sand beach that separates them from the open sea. The coastline was receding with each winter storm, says a wetlands expert, and I'm not going to pronounce his name. Oh, sure, Girek Kuflu. Kufulu, who helps manage the site located in the heart of the Côte d'Azur on the French Mediterranean coast. This is from Agence France. Concentrationists acquired the site through legal wrangling in the late 90s after the former owner, a salt company that built the protective dikes, wanted to sell it to developers. The dikes didn't really work. Even with over one mile of seawalls, the sea still crept inland about 100 feet. The beach along its outer edge disappeared. It seemed the inevitable. The rest of the wetland would one day be submerged. After years of studies, work began a couple years ago to extract thousands of tons of fake boulders. That was the seawall. We had to do it gently to avoid damaging the natural barrier of Neptune grass near the coast, said uh, a representative of the Coastal Conservation Organization that's owned the site. Since the uh, salt folks petered out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Astonishingly, once the dikes were gone, it only took a few months for a new landscape to emerge, including a wide beach with a small dune. Small Mediterranean dunes and leaves of dead Neptune grass, an underwater plant that's vital to the ecosystem, soon formed banks that serve as natural barriers against erosion. With its vast area separating the land from the sea, the salt marsh plays a crucial role in regulating the local climate and provides a rich habitat for a variety of animal species, more than 300 bird species spotted in the area. The interaction between the wetlands and the beach means that biodiversity here has increased tenfold, says one of the researchers. At the world's largest biodiversity summit this week, so-called nature-based solutions are at the forefront of ideas for adapting to unprecedented 
environmental change. There's a, a book I read a few years ago called Paving Paradise about the enforcement of the no net loss of wetlands provision of the Clean Water Act. The enforcement in Florida, which was left to the United States Army Corps of Engineers. The result, you may not be surprised to learn, was major loss in wetlands, partly because rather than try to let nature build wetlands, the Army Corps said, oh, we can do that. They tried. And global computing could be responsible for a greater share of greenhouse gas emissions than previously thought, according to research at Lancaster University. These emissions will continue to rise significantly unless action is taken. That's from a new study, that new study. Team of researchers and sustainability consultants at Small World Consulting Lab claim that previous calculations of information communication technology, its share of global greenhouse emissions, were estimated at 1.8 to 2.8 percent. Those calculations likely fall short of the sector's real climate impact. They only show a partial picture. What's missing? According to the researchers, these prior estimates, or at least some of them, don't account for the full life cycle and supply chain of information communication technology products and manufacturers such as oh how much energy is expended in manufacturing the products and equipment what's the carbon cost associated with all of their components and the operational carbon footprint of the companies behind them the energy consumed when using the equipment and also the carbon cost of their disposal after they go bye-bye could be a percent or two higher the proportion of global greenhouse gas emissions used by information communication technology. They stress to the researchers that there are still significant uncertainties around these calculations. They uh, suggest that that business, ICT, information communications technology, has an emissions total greater than the aviation industry. And the paper warns that new trends in computing, such as big data and the Internet of Things, and blockchain and crypto, risk driving further substantial growth in the greenhouse gas footprint of information technology. The news of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, I guess I can um, retire that feature because... Nice Corp to the rescue. Nice people doing nice things. After decades of dismissing the scientific consensus behind climate change and attacking carbon reduction measures, the news outlets in Australia owned by Rupert Murdoch will reverse course starting next month. This is according to the New York Times and the Sydney Morning Herald. The move will also include the Murdoch properties advocating for net zero emissions from the world's largest economies by 2050. That's reported by the Sydney Morning Herald as well. That's an Australian newspaper not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Throughout the last couple of years, as wildfires ravaged down under, 
public outrage toward the Murdoch newspapers and Sky News TV grew on social media and increasingly seeped into Australian political debate, according to Business Insider. News Corp didn't comment, nor did a spokesperson. Starting on October 17th, News Corp will, quote, will run a two-week campaign that will advocate for a carbon net zero target to be reached by 2050, which is expected to focus heavily on jobs in a decarbonized economy, particularly blue-collar industries such as mining resources and agriculture. That's according to sources who did speak to the Morning Herald. Part of that campaign will involve tabloid mastheads. I think they mean the stuff above the name of the paper. Featuring the net zero emissions messaging. Climate change deniers and skeptics will be limited in their appearances. The shift will not amount to the muzzling of them. I didn't say Muslim, I said muzzling. The um, News Corp coverage became international news in its own right over the course of 2019 and 2020. It culminated in James Murdoch, one of Rupert's sons, breaking ranks and accusing his family of promoting climate denialism. He subsequently resigned from the News Corp board a year ago. His brother, Lachlan, continues to serve as executive chairman and CEO of the Fox Corporation, which owns Fox News. How'd that happen? Sky News... The most prominent Murdoch outlet in Australia has been the subject of the most intense backlash for its climate coverage. One of its hosts called climate change, quote, a fraudulent and dangerous cult, unquote, has been driven by, quote, unscrupulous and sinister interests, unquote. By the way, the timing of this is related to the next big international conference on climate change, which is coming up. This November. Then they can go back to their usual stuff. News of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. The women of 9-11. The exploiters. We had a problem with Iraq before September 11th. We have a problem with Iraq after September 11th. But perhaps we see it with a little more clarity to the real nightmare, which would be the uh, joining together of uh, weapons of mass destruction in the hands of uh, tyrants with the threat that is terrorism. In and of themselves, these are important and uh, devastating threats, terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. If they were ever to come together, it would make September 11th uh, look, uh, look like child's play. What we have a moral imperative to do is to be certain that uh, the United States, with all of its uh, great power at this point, is uh, leaving a secure environment and uh, a peaceful environment. The burden of proof for what Saddam Hussein is or is not possessing is not on the United States. Condoleezza Rice, America remembers, but would like to forget. sunset he is on his hands and knees he is searching for his keys at a small vietnamese place on east 11th street 
starters both at once say, can we just get going, please? As his wife begins to sneeze, and his son is throwing peas, and eating with his feet. Southern California, this is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, news of a smart world. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart, smart world. You get those kids out of here. The British newspaper, The Telegraph, has um, obtained a dossier of documents 
from the people who run the highways in England called Highways England. It documents um, system failings over four days in April that uh, occurred at the same time as the transportation minister's announcement that smart motorways are as safe or safer than motorways with hard shoulders. The file reveals how a bug in a firewall and then a communication system failure decimated control of the smart motorway network. Campaigners who have lost loved ones killed after breaking down in live lanes said that the dossier was proof scrapping the hard shoulder is a cost-cutting exercise which ignores the perils of technological failures. Whistleblower spoke on condition of anonymity, said staff were, quote, really worried about safety, unquote, particularly if a system crash means they cannot immediately close a live lane with a red X on a road sign above it when a motorist fails to reach an emergency refuge area and is stuck in the path of high-speed traffic. Quote, we've had enough, said the insider. The system keeps breaking down, meaning we can't control our signs and signals on motorways, including smart motorways. One day we could not access signs and signals for up to seven hours, so there was information telling drivers lanes were closed when they were actually opened, and speed limits were in place when they were actually not. Control room, this is continuation of the the whistleblowers, quote, Control room staff are petrified because it feels like the whole system is a ticking time bomb. You can stop the ticking, I guess. Some will quit and others will go off sick because we feel we can't keep people on the network safe. The system is broken, unquote. The source added how Dynac, a computerized system that oversees and controls the network of signs, has been nicknamed DyNow because we're worried someone is going to get killed. It, transpire, it transpires that invariably Dynac, an Austrian-made traffic software program, is not to blame, and the problems are often found in the myriad high-tech systems running alongside of it. Just stay off the highway. Let them, let them run it for no one, to quote the Beatles. Also in Britain, senior lawmakers are being warned of an emerging pushback against the use of smart technology, such as facial recognition, increased surveillance, and predictive policing as means of fighting crime. Leading academics have advised there is no single approach or response to the issue of employing algorithmic tools for law enforcement. They did say that lawmakers need to strike the right balance as they wrestle with the nuances of crime-fighting technology versus, you know, individual rights and freedoms, those old things. The Justice and Home Affairs Committee of the House of Lords kicked off a new term this week with a meeting that sought to assess the use of AI and other technologies from different jurisdictions across the world. A professor from UC Davis in the United States they have a school of law at UC Davis. Imagine that. Told the committee that the size and structure of the U.S. law enforcement system means that in many cases new technologies are adopted on a case-by-case 
basis. She says this results in some concerns. Quote, with respect to certain technologies, we've begun to see some criticism and pushback. So, for example, while predictive policing tools were embraced by many police departments in the 2010s, you can see small movements toward a backlash. She mentioned an un, unquote. She mentioned an unnamed city in California that was one of the first to adopt a predictive policing software tool. Also became one of the first to ban such programs after it failed to deliver what had been expected. In places such as L.A., there's no place such as L.A., which has a significant police force. The department there has stepped back from relying on some predictive programs. In some cases, she explained there have been calls for technologies such as facial recognition to be banned. Attempts to do so have been piecemeal and not on a national scale. Asked whether this pushback was down to the reliability of the technology or the ethics, she replied, quote, both. Certainly, she said there have been concerns about racial bias in the data that is used in tools like facial recognition. And with respect to some predictive policing tools, she suggested they may not be as reliable or as effective as promised. And speaking of cities like L.A., or in this case, L.A., Los Angeles police are instructed to collect social media details from people they stop and talk to, even if those civilians aren't suspected of breaking the law. That's what we learned, or the so, the uh, tech journal The Register learned, from documents revealed after a lengthy legal battle. The Brennan Center for Justice, a nonprofit institute at New York University, last year submitted a public records request for information on LAPD's use of social media to monitor people and groups. The center had its request not fulfilled, went to Superior Court, and then the LAPD relented. Having at last obtained the information, the center published all 6,000 pages of it this week. It turns out L.A. police have for years been told to collect social media information, usernames, email addresses, profile page URLs from people stopped and spoken to by officers, whether or not those people were involved in a crime at all in any way. Those details, along with other info about a subject, are noted on field interview cards, which are stored away for future use and possible surveillance. A card can even include someone's social security number, if an officer so wishes. It's left to individual cops to decide whether they want to fill out an interview card for someone they've quizzed. Sounds like a a good system. Last year, Top Brass said these records would be checked by supervisors to ensure they're complete and valid, as the data may be needed to make arrests and secure prosecutions. The L.A. Times earlier reported some officers allegedly falsified interview cards to portray people as gang members. The cops are told not to use their own personal internet accounts to view someone's social media content. Instead, officers should submit a preservation request to Facebook via its law enforcement portal to ensure the content can later be obtained by a search warrant. Police also have the green light to invent a fictitious online persona to investigate a crime, if necessary. The overall goal is to funnel social media records and other data into a surveillance system built by a company called Palantir, owned by Peter Thiel, who started uh, PayPal with Elon Musk, 
to broadly monitor people and identify connections between civilians. LAPD also has a unit dedicated to auditing and testing predictive policing software that can automatically highlight patterns, hotspots, trends, clusters, spikes, and or offenders for the purpose of identifying, arresting, and prosecuting criminals. Unquote. The uh, mission statement. Documents also show LAPD monitors keywords and hashtags on social networks relating to protests and social movements, including Black Lives Matter, left-leaning political activism, and anti-Trump rallies. See a trend? The Brennan Center said it looked into 40 other U.S. City Police Departments. It didn't find evidence of those agencies using such interview cards to collect people's info. The center's experts are concerned about this amassing of data on civilians, as well as how it may introduce bias into predictive policing, where minorities disproportionately have their information collected by officers. There's often no oversight at what they're looking at, and they're collecting information from people when there is no clear wrongdoing, says researcher at the Brennan Center. She continues, quote, there's no justification for using those tools to trawl through people's social media, unquote. Except that, you know, cops are bored. They don't read the papers. Now news of the godly Catholic priest who formerly led parishes in the Boston area has been barred from public ministry after an ecclesiastical panel found him guilty of sexually abusing a minor in the 1960s. According to the Archdiocese of Boston, it confirmed the resolution of the case involving Reverend Paul McLaughlin. It said McLaughlin, 91, had been found guilty of child abuse and his sentence has been affirmed by the Vatican. His sentence, four years in No. Live a life of prayer and penance. Ouch. That smarts. In the light of that sentence, the Archdiocese said McLaughlin, who currently lives in California, well, let's get the LAPD to check his uh, social media. No, he's barred from exercising any public ministry, including celebrating masses. In addition, he may not provide spiritual direction, may not wear clerical attire, and cannot function as a cleric. Quote, he is to live in contemplation of his sins and pray for all of those affected by his conduct, said the Archdiocese. The Globe, the Boston Globe, reported in February 2003 that three men the prior year had come forward to accuse McLaughlin of abusing them in the 1960s. In uh, September 2001, he was placed on administrative leave following an allegation of use of abuse reported to have occurred in the late 1960s with a minor. One man said McLaughlin, uh, I'm not going to read that one. You can imagine it. When he was 11 or 12 years old. He was also accused in a separate lawsuit of abusing a boy at least 10 times from 1967 to 1969 when the boy was 8 to 10. He couldn't immediately be reached for comment. <laughs> no kidding. And no wonder. 
Now let's turn to the Let Us Try people. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We offer you our hand Let us try That hand of the United States Army Corps of Engineers has been slapped. Federal judges ordered the Corps to make changes at its dams in the Willamette Basin in Oregon to protect the future of salmon and steelhead, enable them to pass through their dams more easily. The fish are listed under the Endangered Species Act. Dams on the Willamette have blocked access to spawning grounds is all. That, strangely enough, has contributed to population declines among the fish, which means less fish. The Willamette system had over 400,000 spring Chinook, and over the decades, those numbers have been decimated, said the executive director of the Willamette Riverkeeper. For the last 12 years, he's fought to get the Corps to make improvements at its dams. When you basically plug up the tributaries to the Willamette so the fish can't swim over the dams and can't get to their spawning grounds and juvenile fish can't get downstream out to the ocean, you have a fundamental basic problem, he said. Not just a basic problem, a fundamental one. Dams do a lot of harm to the fish, said an attorney at Advocates for the West, who sued the Corps three years ago. We started hearing more and more rumblings about things the Corps was supposed to be doing to help the fish, she says. And they weren't doing. The Corps issued a statement saying in part, we take our Endangered Species Act obligations seriously. No reason to read the statement any any farther than that because it's so obviously true. Earlier this summer, the state of Oregon also filed an injunction against the Corps over dam management. No, that wasn't a critique, just a description. Let him try. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Our better late than never apology for this week comes from Bratislava, Slovakia. Slovakia's government apologized this week for legislation it passed during World War II that just happened to strip the country's Jews of their human and civil rights. Marking the 80th anniversary of the Jewish Code, the government said in a statement that, quote, it feels a moral obligation today to publicly express sorrow over the crimes committed by the past regime, unquote. The Code also prevented access of the Jews to education and authorized the transfer of their property to non-Jewish owners. I believe in other contexts, that's context that's called theft the government said the anniversary is an opportunity to remember the crimes against Slovak Jews Slovakia was a Nazi puppet state at the time the code was considered one of the toughest anti-Jewish laws adopted in Europe during the war so it was a very good puppet state the CEO of salad chain Sweetgreen reportedly apologized to employees at a company town hall this week over comments he made in a LinkedIn post that connected U.S. COVID deaths to obesity. News was first reported by Motherboard, which obtained a recording of the event. Jonathan Neiman said in a post that's since been deleted, 
quote, 78% of hospitalizations due to COVID are obese and overweight people. Is there an underlying problem that perhaps we've not given enough attention to? Is there another way to think about how we tackle health care, which he puts in quotes, by addressing the root cause? Unquote. He suggested health mandates and taxes on processed foods as solutions. Quote, no mask and no vaccine will save us. Our best bet is to learn how to best live with it and focus on overall health versus preventing infection, he said. The post was picked up by Vice and caused an online uproar. Sounds redundant. Neiman apologized to Sweet Green employees at the town hall for, quote, putting the brand at risk, unquote, and for making their jobs harder in an already very stressful time, unquote. But while he said he regretted his choice of words, he stood by the Post's intent. The words could have been said much better, it could have been said much more eloquently, but the intent was real, he told employees at the town hall. So he's sorry, but he's not that sorry. For years, Nancy Saltzman and Keith Renier were business partners and allies who promised to improve people's lives. They led the self-help organization Nixium. And when it fell apart in 2018, they became co-defendants accused of running a criminal enterprise that subjected women to sexual abuse. Ranier, or Ranieri, was convicted on several charges and sentenced to 120 years in prison. She pleaded guilty to a single count of racketeering conspiracy. Former Nixium members have described her as an enabler who made Reniere's abuse possible. But as our sentencing hearing approached, she sought to publicly distance herself from him in a letter to the judge. Her lawyers portrayed her as his dupe, writing that she had been Fooled, controlled, humiliated, and ultimately led to engage in criminal conduct by an egotistical, self-important sex fiend, unquote. Judge wasn't persuaded she was sentenced to 42 months in prison, slightly more than prosecutors had asked. Before the sentence, she made a statement to the court in which she said that under his influence, she'd begun to rationalize and overlook the wrongdoing around me. Quote, I apologize to everyone I hurt intentionally and not. I don't know that I can ever forgive myself, unquote. Well, that's the important part, isn't it? Deadline Miami Miami Police Chief Art Acevedo took to Twitter this week to apologize for recently stating that, quote, it's like the Cuban mafia runs Miami PD, unquote. According to a news release from the Miami Fraternal Order of Police, the comment was made during a roll call last month. The Fraternal Order of Police president blasted the police chief for his comment, saying it was derogatory and people of all races and ethnicities reached out to him after the comment was made. Acevedo, who's a Cuban-American from L.A., or a city like L.A., claimed his comment was made in jest while he was discussing the importance of diversity and history of discrimination and racism faced by Cuban exiles and other minorities. Acevedo said city of Miami commissioners have since educated him about how the Castro regime referred to the exile community in Miami as, quote, the Cuban mafia. He continued, having been raised in L.A. In a, as a proud Cuban, I was not aware of this fact. Suffice it to say, I would never have made the statement, and I extend my apologies to our community, unquote. 
Deadline New Philadelphia, Ohio, a former Lutheran pastor, has been sentenced to four years in prison for three counts of sexual battery involving a teen who attended his church. The judge sentenced him on Friday, quote, I'm sorry, I apologize to the victim and her family, the former Lutheran pastor said, Stephen Warren, he said. I apologize to my family and to all the people I'd served in congregations that I'd broken their trust and eroded their confidence in the important office that I held. I have felt guilty for years that I succumbed to this temptation. If I could go back and just prevent what I had done, I really would. I ask for mercy and for forgiveness from everybody involved. Unquote. In response to questions from the judge, Warren acknowledged being aware that his victim had been previously victimized. Crimes occurred between 2008 and 2011 when the victim was between 15 and 18. He engaged in touching of erogenous zones and sexual intercourse. The offenses occurred in the pastor's office and in the parsonage. Meanwhile, outside the parsonage, the National Republican Senate Committee sent out a fundraising email calling the 2020 election a contested takeover. It signed the message with the name of former Vice President Mike Pence. He didn't approve the message. This week, they sent out that email. It was a clear departure from Pence's previous position on the election. An NRSC spokesperson later admitted... The former vice president hadn't approved the email and apologized. I think it was the committee that apologized, not Pence. A Florida businessman who gained notoriety for helping Rudy Giuliani seek damaging information on Joe Biden in Ukraine pleaded guilty this week to a charge alleging he facilitated illegal foreign campaign contributions in an effort to build a marijuana business in the United States. Igor Fruman entered the plea in federal court after reaching a deal with prosecutors that doesn't require him to cooperate in other cases. He was also charged with, but did not plead guilty to, arranging hundreds of thousand dollars in illegal donations to Republicans and political action committees while trying to get Americans interested in investigating Joe Biden's son in Ukraine. He apologized in court to Fruman. He said he was not aware of laws prohibiting foreign campaign contributions at the time he engaged in the donation scheme. Some of the donations made during the campaign to win support for the marijuana business went into the campaign coffers of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That might come up in DeSantis' putative campaign for the presidency. Now let's bring in that fake baseball crowd. Hall of Famer Jack Morris returned to the broadcast booth in Detroit. Missing 10 games following remarks he made during a Tigers-Angels broadcast last month. Suspended for comments he made on the air regarding the Tigers pitching Shohei Otani Veli Kelfali. He underwent bias training during the time away from the booth. He read a long statement and including an apology on the air before Friday's game. Suffice to say, he was sorry. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, you might ask yourself, how do they check the radiation levels in the areas around the destroyed Fuk nuclear plant in Japan? Snakes! Snakes. Researchers are using snakes fitted with tracking devices and dosimeters to measure radiation levels in the area around Fuk. Snakes are important in many ecosystems as they can be both predators and prey, explained one of the researchers. Most of them are rat snakes. They have dosimeters and GPS movement trackers on them, secured with duct tape and super glue. I guess snakes like super glue. The Guardian reports that snakes inside the Fuk exclusion zone, where people are recommended not to live, showed whole body radiation, actually radio cesium levels, 22 times higher than those from outside the exclusion zone. Radio cesium tends to bind to soil and accumulates in the muscle tissues of snakes, says the researcher. We don't understand yet what level would be harmful. Radioactive contamination levels much lower now than they were immediately after the accident. They vary greatly across different terrains, even in locations that are quite close together. The results of the monitoring of the snakes were published in the Ichthyology and Herpetology Journal this summer. Get your copy now. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this edition of the show. Next week, same time, same station on the radio, we'll be back. And um, on your audio device of choice, when you want it. And it'll be just like having snakes that aren't so hot. If you agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to uh, Thomas Walsh back at WWNO New Orleans. Your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, hurry! As well as a um, playlist of the music heard here and the email address of this program, all at harryshearer.com and I'm on Twitter at the TheHarryShearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.